This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9. Good morning to everyone out there who's listening to us. It is 6am, the start of a lovely week, Monday the 27th of June. And this is... Where, where did June go, Philip? It went by just very fast. Half of the year is gone, Shaoning. Okay, by Half the way... Half of the year is gone. This is the morning run. You are listening to the booming voice of Philip C. And I'm Wong Shaoning. <laughs> the voice of God telling you what have you amounted to in the first half of the year. And you've done nothing and you better deliver something in the second is half of the year. Is this your inner voice? <laughs> yes, it's telling me, right? <laughs> yeah, it's telling you. Get your act in order. And then ASAP. you are what? Like putting it out there to feel better or make everyone yeah. else feel as guilty as I'm you are. I'm trying to emanate all my negative karma and passing it to everybody so that I will start my second half of the year much better. <laughs> okay, what a good way to start a Monday morning. Uh, but as usual, how was your weekend? It was very good. I went for a dinner date with my mom. I took her to ENW. Wow, and tell us why this, the significance of this dinner date with your mother. ENW. Yes, because it's part of my research and development, my R&D, because I will be interviewing the CEO of Global. ENW. CEO. Global CEO of ENW, Don't Play Play, Kevin Basner at 8 o'clock as part of the Breakfast Grill. Okay, for all you people out there like me who grew up eating the $1 Coney Dog on a Tuesday and a root beer float, don't forget to tune in. But as usual, we've got a super packed show. 7.15, we're going to be talking about political funding and why is it critical for there to be an act with Wong Chin Huat. He's the political scientist at Sunway University. And at 7.30, Ukraine and Moldova were granted EU status, but membership may be far, far away. We speak to Dr. Frederick Klein, Research Fellow at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, about the process and also the significance of this membership. And at 7.45, you know, consumer price index at 2.8% for May. <laughs> yeah, <I> be- nobody <laughs> believes that number because I'm sure prices for everything has gone up by more than that. We are Zohir Mohamed Rosli, Senior Researcher at DM Analytics about his own Chekia Index and if that is a better reflection of the cost of living pressures. All this, on more, all this and more on the morning run. Stay tuned for this BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9607. It's Monday the 27th of June. And of course, that was helped by the Beatles. Something we cry out every morning when we get up at 3 or 4 to drag ourselves to the studio. But once we're here, once we're here, we do have a very good time. And we like to keep you company all the way till 10 a.m. Of course, speak for yourself, Shawnee. I don't need any help. I'm very self-reliant. And I'm I'm all by myself, yeah. (laughs) All by yourself. Isn't there another song? Isn't there another Beatles song? Isn't there Celine Dion song? All by myself or something like that. Sad song That's to sing, reset. by the way. Yes, it was. Uh, but <laughs> something that is a little bit sad is sometimes the way we look when we switch on our Zoom cameras, right? <laughs> <laughs> I have actually seen videos of naked men walking oh, past the no. Zoom video were... in a corporate video setting. Oh, it's pretty no. embarrassing. Okay, by the way, if you're that wondering... That wasn't me, by the way. Okay. <laughs> if you're wondering why we're bringing this all up, it's because the topic that we're discussing right now is this BBC article which says the case for turning off your Zoom camera. And... You chose this, right, Philip? I chose this. This is really the... It, I mean, there's so many articles over this transition to hybrid about how do you mix uh, return to office versus, uh, you know, online. And even in Malaysia, there's been a lot of discussion happening about return to office kind of uh, rules, right? Mm. Uh, I think even with the ministry even contemplating and discussing something to that effect. But this is the question where I think still many of us are still tied to our Zoom meetings, our team conversations taking place. And the big debate here 
says, should you turn off your camera or turn on your camera? I think for me personally, all this time I have mostly been turning off my camera, but yes, there have been we, bosses. We know that. We know that because we've had a few Zoom meetings with you and yes. we know you're not there, but never mind. <laughs> well, <laughs> Philip C is literally checked out. <laughs> I've literally checked out, right? When I actually have my Zoom and I turn it off. But there are many bosses who actually request and say, before the meeting starts, could you please turn on your Zoom camera? Oh, okay. I've never insisted that. I have seen that before. Okay. Maybe not in many organisations, but overseas globally, mm. uh, especially if you're talking to external partners, you, I think it's it's very prudent to turn on your camera, mm, for mm. sure. I have a few rules when it comes to using Zoom. Rule one is if the guests... I mean, and we use Zoom in the studio a lot for our recordings um, and also for our live shows because of COVID, right? We've had to use it. And thank thank God for it, honestly. You know, I'm grateful for Zoom. Although sometimes I feel less grateful when that means that there's never-ending meetings. Mm. But otherwise, my rule number one is if the guest has his camera on, I will switch on my camera because that's just madness to me. Right, he has, he or she has initiate, initiated this conversation, and once face to face time, in a normal setting, I he would he or she would have my FaceTime in a yeah. meeting anyway, right? Mm. So why can't I switch on the camera? It's just madness uh, to me. So that's yes. rule number one. Uh, but if they continue to switch off the camera, then okay, fine. But I do, for me, I do prefer the camera because I think one thing about it is that conversations communication is beyond just words. A lot Agree. of it is the visual cues. And if you don't have it, uh, it makes it far harder, far more challenging. So I think just building on that second point, that is also the reason why many advocate to turn off the Zoom camera eventually. Because okay. when you have just only that small box there, mm. your eye to see visual cues beyond is very focused and okay. it can be very tiring to the eye. Whereas let's say if we meet in a bigger setting, you're actually less, you're straining less your eyes okay. when you're trying to get bigger visual cues when you engage someone. So purportedly in, in this article, it says that if you are turning on your Zoom camera all the time, it can actually be quite exhausting after a while. But then how do you go, how do you manage these non, non-verbal cues then? Is, it has, is very hard. Has COVID, I mean in this post-COVID world where we're transitioning to endemicity, what have we learned about mm. video conferencing? It's not just Zoom, right? It's any form, whether it's Microsoft Teams, WebEx, and there's so many out there. Is there an an optimum way to communicate with someone? Is it best where you set out the ground rules at the very beginning and then there's some sort of, uh, you know, kind of consensus about how we should go about this call? So it's about the nature of the call. So to give you an example, two contrasting examples. One is my Sunday school. Mm. We started going back to in-person teaching just this weekend. And it was such a joy to teach my kids in person because now you see the the visual cues. You yes. see them leaning in, listening. You know and what when they're, they're irritated with what you say. Or they're irritated <laughs> or they're not, right? So I find it very refreshing. Then I can take cues. And then the lesson actually drags on longer than I expected because you're trying to read what the room is saying and you're responding appropriately. Whereas when you're in a Zoom situation, you really don't get whether people are listening or not. You know, And they're not even asking as many questions as they were as in school. Yeah, because it's hard to engage someone when they're on a video call. I think that's the reality of it. It's super hard. So I think what I think will happen as we get into hybrid is there has to be a structured way for us to meet in person because you still don't want to go to office and just do Zoom calls all the time. No. So everybody should meet. But there should be certain days where, okay, follow-up meetings can be done on Zoom. Yeah, because... Zoom does make things life much easier, right? You don't have to travel. You can do the meeting ad hoc in your house, 
in a cafe, anywhere. You can work re- literally remotely. But is it a 100% solution to to all your no. work or even socially, you know, because some people did use Zoom to catch up with friends during COVID, right? Uh, I had these friends who had happy hour at 6pm on Saturdays and they did it via Zoom and they had like a drink in their hand and then they said cheers like as if they were really in some pub. But, you know, is is there... It works, but it works to up to some level. Yes. So I think like for the social element, people are going to eliminate Zoom relatively fast. Unless you're overseas. Unless you're overseas. You want to build social connections. You try and meet in person. But work is a bit different Mm. where you need to have that initial face-to-face to to build relationship rapport. But after a while, when things kind of smoothen out, you have actually things just go through data or project plan per se. It doesn't really need to have that. So tell us, you know, tell us what your your post pandemic world is like uh, when it comes to communicating with your colleagues or your friends? Have you gone back to just in-person meetings or is it really hybrid? And when you did use Zoom or WebEx or, you know, video conferencing, what were your back, your your main beefs about it? What were you so irritated about? Tell us. You can always tweet us at BFM Radio or, of course, you can WhatsApp in um, I don't have the number in front of me, unfortunately. My producer left it out. Zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Thank you, Felicity, to, for the for that big rescue. Uh, but up next, some messages. Messages. Keep it here. BFM eighty nine point nine. Six twenty in the morning, Monday, the twenty seventh of June, and that was a very sad song. Why I love that song. Does it always rain on me by Travis? I love that song. Is that your de facto mood? Is it? <laughs> no, of course not. But you know, I play cynical. And sad. And Cynical and sad. Is all by me? myself. <laughs> I love that song because I used to work in United UK a lot and that, that was played quite frequently and on it air. meant literally, right? And it was talking to me. It always talked to me, but also UK was always raining. So it was like, yeah, okay, quite true. Literal song. <laughs> we dedicate this to the United Kingdom, Kingdom. and the poor people who are suffering we'll there in the rain. On, due to bad weather. And guess what? Bojo has probably rained on their parade because he says he's going to stick around to 2013. Did you see that tagline? <laughs> I did. Even though, you know, the Conservatives won two, lost two really major seats over the weekend, or I think end of last week, and he's still very adamant that he will remain in power. Who isn't? I mean, <laughs> name me all the politicians who also are quite similar like this around the world. Anyway, uh, we're talking about another politician, this one who actually has to leave office because of the constitution, I think, or the rules. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. And that is uh, Jokovi. Uh, it's an interesting article in The Guardian and it's entitled Bi- Bicycle Diplomacy, Anthony Albanese and Joko Widodo excuse me, gear up for challenging times. Philipsy, do you yes, cycle? I do cycle. I you think have actually a bicycle? I used to have. So you don't cycle anymore then? I don't. I kind of was put off after seeing all these middle-aged men in Lycra just cycling all around the city. I've kind of lost touch with that concept. <laughs> but I do think this is a very interesting way of building diplomacy between leaders. Because as we know, Joko Widodo is a very, man, uh, very much a man of the, man of the streets. Mm-hmm. He, he worked from bottom up. And when Anthony Albanese came came into power uh, and started doing his tour around the region. I think Indonesia was one of his first stops, naturally, because it's such a big geopolitical uh, partner in the region. And so I think it's very nice and touching and warm that both of them met and exchanged gifts. gifts. And what Joko Widodo gave Anthony Albanese was a bamboo 
constructed bike. And they ah. were bike, cycling all around the Bogo Palace to rebuild relationship. I think it's very symbolic. It's very meaningful. It's also is very it, thoughtful. Is it also part of this like, oh, look at us, you know, we are so environmental. We are so sustainable. We're not using uh, fossil fuels or carbon... Uh, you know, or you know, because we're cycling. Well, credit to uh, Joko Widodo. I think he was very much into cycling even before this whole talk about sustainability. When CNN interviewed him, I think about a decade ago, uh, they went actually cycling all around the city. So this is actually something innate in uh, Maybe it's, jo- Jokowi. It's a great way for a political leader to really see what's on the ground when you're on your bicycle, right? Yes. Versus in a motorcade with all the police driving at 120 kilometers per hour pushing cars aside. You don't see that uh, much. Well, I, I don't know. I think in Malaysia, I do see that quite often. <laughs> yeah, you don't see very much when the car's going that fast, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Unless, uh, but, of course, you're in an ambulance and yes. then that's the problem. Uh, but, you know, he's not the only one because uh, recently our health minister... Uh, Kari Jamuluddin also went on a little bicycle ride with the health minister of Singapore, Ong Yi Kun. Mm. I, I have to say that the the Malaysia-Singapore bilateral relationship is actually framed by quite a lot of bicycle trips together. So even in my previous capacity, I've seen uh, KSUs, like one level below mm-hmm. civil servants, actually uh, go for cycling trips with their Singapore counterpart all across Malaysia looking for durians. Oh, So there has actually been a very good relationship built through sports, through joint activities together. And they do a lot of fun things just to build a relationship. And that's why, to be fair, that's why Malaysia-Singapore bilateral relationships at the working level is pretty solid. And these are the subtle ways how you build rapport. Yeah. And for me, you know, this bicycle trip between Anthony Albanese and Jokowi is a really interesting restart of the relationship because we know that it has been quite tension and tenuous between both parties and once Anthony Albanese came in now he's going all around even in Malaysia uh, his foreign minister Penny Wong is expected to arrive in Malaysia very soon or yes. has already uh, 28th of June 28th of June which is tomorrow which actually. is tomorrow so yeah. I think this is how you rebuild the relationship and mm. what better way than all these organic ways of building the diplomacy yeah, maybe you don't need that big, big function with a thousand people in the ballroom and then everything's so formal. How do you actually get to know your fellow leader Yeah, in an in informal setting? In a way that you're just two of you only in a bike. You also have to learn how to speed together, how to race together. What happens if you can't cycle? Oh, uh, well, well, that's that, that's a problem of the host for not doing the research. I'm sure they would have done their research they would before have. they have considered it, right? Yes. Uh, but imagine you get on a bike, which happened to Biden, and you fall off, unfortunately, sometimes. That's the other, you know, not such positive news if, if you were going on a bike, right? But I think it shows a little bit more of a human side to you. Absolutely. And maybe that's the way to build relationships, not only just in the world of diplomacy, but even just among friends, right? To consider going on a bike ride instead of doing... You know what, uh, try that as a new activity. I wonder whether that will happen soon because if I think about diplomacy, it's always been formal like China with the pandas and such. Yeah. How do you build one-to-one leader relationships? That's you going give to them be a key. Bike. You give them a bike. You give them a bike that they really want. Uh, but up next, we've got the 6.30 uh, news bulletin. But to take us there is Lost in the Supermarket by The Clash. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, welcome back. You're listening to The Morning Run. In front of me is Philip C. And of course, I'm Wong Xiaoning. It is 6.40, Monday, the 
the 27th of June and that song was Where Have All the Cowboys Gone by Paula Co. I didn't know there were any in KL actually. <laughs> and they're definitely not in Russia because Russia is hours <laughs> away from its foreign <laughs> default in the century. Really? Yes. Has it happened? Not yet. Not yet. I think it's due uh, this midnight on Sunday. So it's 6.40 here in KL. So I presume it's about 30, 40 minutes away from it not basically meeting its bond payments because it's a grace period of about $100 million of missed bond payments that were blocked because of wide-ranging sanctions. Supposed to be delivered by end of Sunday night, it is very unlikely. It is very likely that they will not be able to deliver pay. How, what is the consequences of this though? And you know what? I don't think Russia really cares, do they? Yes, it's largely symbolic because honestly, this is self-imposed. It's imposed by the Western uh, nations, right? So I think Russia was very committed to make these payments. But due to the disruptions and interference due to the payment channels, I think that's why they were not able to make these payments. Okay, Uh, but that's not the only news, right, coming out of Russia, at least related to Russia, because uh, the Financial Times reports G7 aims to hurt Russia with price cap on oil imports, exports, excuse me. Talks on curbing Moscow's energy profits will continue continue on Monday with India and others joining in on this Bavarian summit. I saw the pictures, beautiful pictures of the leaders there. It's a luxury them. resort, by the way, Schloss Elmau. This is where uh, Angela Merkel and Barack Obama were together with that iconic picture of both of them embracing each other. I'm not sure. I don't go to these luxury resorts <laughs> in the <laughs> really, Swiss Alps, obviously. Yeah, we don't. We don't. We're not that well paid yes. at BFM at all. But that point is interesting from a standpoint that if they can get India on board, that would be pretty consequential. You know, the, the the challenge has always been with respect to Russian oil is that, yes, you know, it's stopped predominantly, mostly into the Western countries, mm. but it's been rechanneled and funneled back to China and India. Yeah, but will this price cap rates. work though? Will this price cap be accepted? Because the what they intend to do is to say, hey, look, let's control the amount of money that is going into Russia to help to help their war effort against mm. Ukraine, right? Because otherwise, who is funding the Kremlin war machine? And the, the soaring oil prices have actually benefited Russia and given them the finances to do so. And the Russian ruble is at its highest. Yeah. So initially, when the stock market and the Russian ruble collapsed, everybody thought, oh, these sanctions are working. But it doesn't seem to be the case at all, right? Because the economies in the domestic economy in Russia, I think is impacted, but isn't impacted to the point where the war efforts have been curtailed. In fact, recent news suggests that Russia seems to, making, seems to be making quite serious advances in Ukraine. That's right. They've been gaining advantages on the eastern side, I think claiming some key towns in the past uh, few days. And even a Ukrainian president, uh, President uh, Vladimir Zelensky has also said that, you know, that it's been very tough, that actually uh, morale is waning on the Ukrainian side. So Russia is actually making advances in the war in Ukraine. At the same time, its economy seems very much resilient and robust, despite the stories you hear everywhere about these multinationals leaving, McDonald's, Nike and such, you know, exiting the country. But still, they're able to hold their own. And persevere. Yeah, they had that Russian uh, billionaire take over all the McDonald's, call, give it its, its old, some new name. Something called Tasty. Yeah, something Tasty and then restart again, right? And there was a very interesting podcast that came out about last week about how, how Russia is trying to get advice from Iran on how to navigate these yeah, sanctions. Yeah, because in Iran, you can get whatever you want. You want an Apple iPhone, you can get that. You want an iPad, you can get it. You want a TV, you can get it. And it's they, super difficult. And the way they do it is they channel it through the Middle East. Yeah, but then also because Iran is an 
extremely porous country, right? I think there's something like 13 countries uh, surrounding its yes. borders. So it's really easy for goods to kind of just enter into the country, maybe less so for Russia. Uh, but I think, you know, honestly, sanctions are there to curb economic activity. But realistically, I think, look at North Korea. That's a classic example of sanctions going on for decades and still somehow... And still they still hold on. Yeah. The question is, of course, what is the intention of sanctions? They're meant to curb economic activity, even drive a country a economy to a recession. But the irony here is that the West is now contemplating recession. Yeah. It is very likely that the US and EU will head into election recession either this year or next year. And that's why you're seeing certain commodities actually crashing substantially as a result of this prospect. You see yeah, actually... The, the demand destruction is happening now, right? Exactly. The price for copper, tin and other metals have actually fallen to the point that they're even as low as they were pre-2008. Of course, you contrast that to other commodities like agriculture. They are on a... Yeah, know, they're on a tear. tear. Very quickly, uh, Xi Jinping is going to leave China. First time since COVID, he's going to uh, Hong Kong to mark the city's 25th anniversary of Chinese rule against a backdrop of rising COVID-19 cases. So it's going to be interesting how what his state visit is going to be like. Uh, but up next, we've got some local news for you to take us to some messages it is regret by New Order. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9 and that was regret by new order. Hopefully it doesn't it's not what we say at the end of every day. But <laughs> <laughs> but as usual we are looking through some of the local headlines and when I read that I feel I do feel a little bit of regret actually. Mm. Uh, what's caught your eye though, Philipsy? Well, I think the one that I hope people are not regretting is when they are on the threshold of bankruptcy because the government is looking at the possibility of raising uh, its bankruptcy threshold. The Prime Minister has said he's especially worried about the high number of cases, especially among the youth. Okay, I'm glad he's uh, noticed this. And I think he wants to discuss the matter with Law Minister and Bank Negara Governor. This is according to the New Straits Times, page Six and currently the threshold is a hundred thousand, and it was already raised in twenty twenty from fifty thousand during the COVID nineteen pandemic, um, and that was also basically because you know a lot of people were suffering during mm. the pandemic, incomes completely dried up, so they didn't want to you know people to be declared bankrupt. Are we hitting and, a slippery know, slope when we start raising the thresholds again? Yes, I'm, I'm wondering why we keep adjusting the bar. I'm not saying that the bar should not be adjusted uh, periodically. I think the bar needs to be to reflect the current times. Mm. Uh, but considering you just raised it in 2020, why are you raising it again? But my point is, why don't we look at solutions as to why or reasons? Firstly, we need to analyse why are these individuals getting into financial distress. What is the cause of it? And look at it and resolve those problems rather than raise the bar, bar and as if the problem itself will go away. So the question here is, look, I think there is some pressure here, especially among the youth, because it, it really bankruptcy at a young age is going to be quite jarring. Yes, and, and but we do know it's not a one-way street. It's not a one-way street. AKPK, which is the government's debt uh, agent, well, not a debt agency, it's the agency to counseling. help counselling. If you go and seek their help, 85% of those who go to AKPK return back uh, to financial solvency within a certain period of time, provided you follow their plan. 
Mm. So I think that's the point to take away, right? And the point is that how do we build financial literacy at a much younger age? That's the bigger question. So I guess if this is a stopgap measure, what is the government going to do? Will they make it temporary? Will they put conditions to raising the bar limit? Will they be looking at it on a case-by-case basis? There's so many ways perhaps to skin this cat. But the debate is we just don't want a blanket. No, we Race. don't. And we don't want it to just like, okay, because we raised the threshold, suddenly there are fewer bankruptcies and hey, we don't mm. have a problem in society. We don't have a problem among Malaysians. And so shifting from personal balance sheet to now the government's balance sheet, our finance minister, Tengku Zafo, has said that total subsidies in 2022 is expected to reach nearly 80 billion ringgit, the highest in history. This comes on the back on the announcement recently that the government is going to cap its electricity tariffs. There's been a re-imposition of the ceiling price for chicken. Although that will be a adjusted. There will be a new seating price yes. announced by the government soon. Yes, but that will still put a lot of pressure on our subsidy bill. And I wonder if this 80 billion ringgit already takes into account all these caps that have just been announced in the past 48, 72 hours. The, you know, we keep talking about targeted subsidies, you know, uh, removal of price controls. And against this big headline of this $80 billion bill, right, mm. um, with oil continuing to be $110 a barrel, it's painful for us, even though we are net energy exporter. And luckily, we are also commodity exporter in terms of palm oil. If without these two commodities helping us, I think the... We would be in a very tough situation. Yeah, but we shouldn't take it for granted just because we have oil and we have commodities. We should address these target subsidies and the price controls. But what I get a sense of is it looks like politicians among themselves can't agree on what is the best measure forward. I fully agree with you. This is where I think many of us are coming to landing that targeted subsidies is necessary, you know, for fiscal discipline, for us to strengthen the country's balance sheet. But yes. you see this U-turn of positions, especially on chicken pricing. Mm. For example, where it was saying, look, we will lift it up, it was fine. And then within like less than 48 hours, it's a U-turn again. So you're right, right? The, 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 the politicians here don't seem to be aligned yeah. about what is necessary. And the out- objectives and outcomes seem to be mixed between the necessity for financial strength versus political expediency here. Yeah, and you know, is there political will to drive this forward, right, at the end Mm. of the day? Because it needs to be done. But also with so much talk that this year is going to be GE15, everybody seems to be a bit more reluctant. I don't know because, I don't know, I'm guessing Mm. that all these are populist measures because you don't want to, you know, get the public up in arms in terms of removal of subsidies. But for me, if you come up with a, a better plan, a concrete plan. Because I'm not saying remove these subsidies, remove these price controls and then do nothing. No. You need to re-channel whatever savings you have to those who probably need it, who not probably, who need it the most. And we need to find out exactly which households are these. So then the action is clear, action plan. But to be honest with you, this action plan is missing not only on the government side, but also on the opposition side, to be fair, yes, right? We've asked what has the opposition Fazil offered? This, yes, they it's not... just going to the streets and doing protests. But what is the tangible action plan I think we need to see clearly? And at 7.45, we're going to be talking to Zohe Mohamed Rosli, a senior researcher at DM Analytics, about this real cost of living pressure. And he's come up with his own very interesting Chek Kia Index, which... I think describes inflation in Hmm. clearer terms, something that we probably all feel. Uh, But up next, we've got the 7am news bulletin. And to take us there is How Do You Like Me Now by The Heavy. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.